following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Pick up a Bible, which hopefully is nearby, and we're going to be turning to Matthew uh, chapter 20, page 987. In a few moments, Sandy is going to preach. Uh, but first, Melissa's going to read. I think starting from in chapter 19, um, we'll let Melissa say exactly where. Page 987. Yeah, okay. Uh, we're going to start from chapter 19, verse 23, which is just a little bit up the page on 987. And uh, this comes just after Jesus was talking to a rich young ruler. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those, who, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Morning and um, thanks very much, Melissa, for the reading. Please keep that page of the Bible open. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your presence with us over the last year, 
that you've been with us every day. Thank you that we can know with confidence that you'll be with us in the year ahead. And we pray that we might be open to your guiding and leading through your word. And please feed us as we come to it together now. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. Well, Ed kindly allowed me to choose the passage to speak on this morning as we prepare for a new year. And I've chosen this parable of the workers in the vineyard, which is only here in Matthew. And I'm not going to tell you yet why I've chosen it. I'm going to leave you to wonder that as we go through, but I hope it will be clear by the end. And I have four points, and the first you'll see on the handout is the human passion for justice. I've called it a passion rather than an instinct or a desire because it is so deep and powerful. You might say it's essential to what it means to be human. We desperately want things to be fair, and somehow we feel that they should be fair. And the shock of this parable is that it appears that God, who is represented by the owner of the vineyard, is not fair. Verse 1 tells us it's a parable about, it's a parable about the kingdom of heaven, and so the owner represents God. And yet those he hires at the start do 12 times as much work for exactly the same pay as those hired at the end. Surely that is unfair. Not surprisingly, the first workers grumble. You've made them equal to us. Look at all the work we've done in the heat and burden of the day. That is not fair. Every human being has a deep sense hardwired into them of what is just. Go into any playground and you will find children saying to one another, that's not fair. Someone I knew who had two boys aged about five and six uh, decided to buy a pair of scales to weigh out their food before every meal because it was the only way she could stop them fighting about who was getting more. Why is this passion for justice so deep in us? Well, Richard Dawkins says this in his book, River Out of Eden. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. We shouldn't expect justice. The universe that we observe, he says, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He's saying, why do we expect justice? If the universe is just an enormous accident and we're a billion to one shot in the cosmic casino, then of course it's not just. You're an idiot to expect it. But if that's true, why do we have this inescapable sense of justice hardwired into us? Even the bad guys, like Putin, don't say, there's no such thing as justice, I can just do whatever I want. No, they say, I'm on the side of right. I've got a just cause for what I do. People in prison don't say, there's no right and wrong. They say, no, I'm not really the bad guy. Those those guys, the sex offenders or whoever, they're the bad guys. They're the ones who really deserve punishment. Not me, but everyone 
everyone has a sense of justice. The sports journalist Simon Barnes wrote that what footballers, managers, and fans demand of referees is nothing less than perfection. Some of you will recognize the chap on the PowerPoint. And I don't think you'd say he has a preference for justice, would you? I think you'd say he has a passion. It's burning within us. We expect perfect justice from referees, even though we know they can't achieve it. So they introduced VAR to make sure referees get it absolutely right, and that's turned into a bit of a fiasco, and Gary Lineker, who wanted it introduced, is now saying it's ruining the game. We can't get it right, and yet we demand justice. Where does that passion come from? Well, surely it's one of the most powerful clues for the existence of God. Tim Keller says, it's better to call this kind of evidence for God clues rather than proof. You can't prove that God exists one way or the other, but there are clues that he's given us that make his existence plausible. It's rational, it makes sense to believe in him. And this is one of the most powerful clues this is what it says on the tombstone of the great philosopher Immanuel Kant. Two things fill the mind with new, ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Both the beauty of creation beyond us and that sense of right and wrong and justice mean that God has given us inescapable evidence of his existence. And this parable wouldn't work without that universal sense of justice. So that's the first point, the, the human passion for justice. The second point is the justice of God. Jesus repeatedly emphasizes in this parable that the landowner, God, is in fact fair. He is just to everyone here. With the workers hired early in the morning, we're told in verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, which is the normal fair wages for a day's work. And when they complain at the end of the day, he answers them in verse 13, but I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Yes, they did. He's giving them exactly what they agreed. I'm not being unfair. And no one else is being treated unfairly either. Verse 3, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right or just. That's the normal word for just. And in verse 5, it says, he went out again at noon and three in the afternoon and did the same thing. So everyone is told they will be paid what is just. All the way through, like a bell ringing again and again, through the parable, Jesus is emphasizing that God is just. The landowner is fair to those he employs. No one is being cheated. God is a God of justice. That's where our passion for justice comes from. We're made in his image, and so we can't escape that demand for justice written in our souls. And so whatever you, your circumstances, 
never believe that God is unfair. However life is treating you, in the end, God will make all things right. In the film Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, the hotelier Sonny says, when it's all a disaster, he says, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end yet. And that is what Christians believe. If it's not all right, it's not the end yet. So that's the second point, the justice of God. But then comes the third point, which should shock us after the first two points, which is that the kingdom of God is not based on justice. Instead, God's kingdom is about radical, extravagant generosity, the sort of crazy generosity that no business person or landowner would ever show in the real world. This parable is generally called the workers in the vineyard, but perhaps a better title would be the crazy employer. How long would someone who ran their business like this last? Not very long, surely. The employees would be up in arms and he'd quickly go bankrupt because he's playing some of his workers 12 times the going rate for the job. The crazy employer. And the owner in the story here wants his workers to be confronted by this extraordinary generosity. He wants them to see that something very strange is going on here. Look at verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now, if he'd done it the other way around, everyone would have been happy. The first people would have gone away having got what they agreed, and everyone would have been fine until the people at the end got this wonderful surprise, and then they would have been happy too. But he doesn't do it that way. He's insistent that everyone must see that this vineyard operates in a very strange and unique way. One thing you learn when you study the parables is that they are almost always aimed right between the eyes of whoever Jesus is talking to. It's one of the most remarkable things about them. And we know this parable is connected to what's just happened because it starts with the word for. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. So it's connected to what's just happened. And you'll see that the last chapter ends with the same phrase as the parable ends. The last will be first and the first will be last. So Jesus is relating this to the previous section. And in it, the rich young man has gone away sad because he can't give up his possessions. And in verse 27, Jesus says to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? What have we earned? What do we get for all our hard work? We're the people who started right at the beginning. Surely we deserve the most. And the parable is showing them that the kingdom of heaven is not about what we've earned or what we deserve. If you think like that, you've missed the whole point. The deep principle of the kingdom is not about justice, but about radical, extravagant generosity. We get what we don't deserve. We get something much better than what we deserve. If we got justice, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? Peter's going to go on to betray Jesus at the key moment. Does he deserve 
to go to heaven? In fact, Peter's question shows he's completely failed to grasp the basic way in which the kingdom works. Is he qualified for heaven when he misses the whole point of it? Are any of us? Maybe the most widespread heresy of all is that if I live a good life, I'll go to heaven and be with all the other good people. And that is kind of what most people believe, isn't it, even today? But really, do we deserve heaven? Do we want our actions and thoughts and motives weighed up by a God of perfect justice? Because if God really were fair to us, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we, like Peter? The point of the parable is that God is so much more generous to us than we deserve. And he's already told Peter that in verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, if you look at the parallel passage to that in Mark chapter 10, you'll see that the hundred times is in this world, presumably through the community of the church, as we share together, and in the age to come, eternal life. So it's extravagant generosity, isn't it? A hundred times as much. The surprise of the parable is not that he's unfair to the first people, it's that he's radically, madly generous to the last people. At the 11th hour, as it says in the authorized version, that is just before it gets dark, about five o'clock, these poor day laborers are out there still waiting. They must be desperate. They've been there all day standing around hoping that someone might turn up so their kids can eat that night. And suddenly there's a beautiful act of generosity where they're given a whole day's wages for an hour's work. But instead of rejoicing at that wonderful act of grace, the first people get angry. They're grumbling. Why are they so cross? Verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? That last phrase is literally, is your eye evil because I am good? The problem is not the injustice of God, is it? The problem is our evil eye, our twisted distortion of our instinct for justice. Someone gives me a thousand pounds, I think, oh, how wonderfully generous. But if someone gives you a thousand pounds and not me, I think, what, them? Are you envious because I'm generous? Yes, I am. I twist God's goodness into unfairness, and I feel resentful instead of grateful. The little Pharisee in me gets angry. It's like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He should be rejoicing at the wonderful day in which his younger brother has come back and been welcomed into the family. And instead, he's angry and grumbling, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That's us, isn't it? Little Pharisee in us. And that's in the laborers here, verse 
12. These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you've made us equal to them who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. If you're counting up what you deserve, the hours you've put in, how much you've done, you've completely missed the point of the kingdom. Do you hear that, Peter? So to be in God's kingdom is to have a complete change of thinking, isn't it? The deep principle of God's kingdom is not justice, but generosity. And that leads us to the last point. And I think that's the key point that Jesus wants the disciples to grasp here. Peter, like the laborers, is keeping a record. He's counting up. But what he's missed is the adventure, the joy, the romance of the kingdom. If you trust yourself to him, Jesus won't give you what you deserve. He'll give you far more than you deserve. That is the romance of the kingdom, and I suggest to you it's the secret of a happy Christian life. It's the reason I chose this passage as we come to a a new year of serving the Lord. Just take a moment to audit your heart as you look forward to the year ahead, if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, maybe I can just say you're in the right place. Maybe you're just beginning to explore Christianity, you're thinking it through, you're checking it out, and I want to say keep coming, you're in the right place, ask all the hard questions you can think of. But if you are a Christian, then everything you do, you're working for the Lord, not just the churchy stuff, not just the spiritual stuff, but in everything we do, in our daily jobs, in providing for our family, that is part of serving the Lord and caring for his world. God cares for this world through the labor of his people. So how are you feeling about your labor, your hard work in the year ahead? Are you counting the hours, adding up the things that you've done? Do you realize, Lord, how tough my job is? Do you know how irritating my kids are? Do you know how many rotors I'm on? The little Pharisee in me wants to do that, add it all up. But it's never a joyful thing, is it? The secret of a happy Christian life is to say, Lord, I want to be part of the adventure, the romance of the kingdom, which is full of surprises and unexpected scatterings of grace. An upside-down place where the last will be first and the first will be last, as Jesus says twice here. God often works in ways we don't expect. The things we've carefully planned come to nothing, and yet the things we never dreamed of suddenly happen. Because it isn't our kingdom. We don't control it. That's the romance of being part of God's kingdom. One of my favorite quotes comes from Leslie Newbegin, and he says this, The work of the Holy Spirit is always mysterious. The ways by which the truth of the gospel comes home to the heart and conscience of this person or that person are always mysterious. They cannot be programmed and they cannot be calculated. But where a community is living in alert faithfulness, they happen. Where a community is living in alert faithfulness, 
they happen. Let me offer you a silly example of one odd thing I noticed when I was a vicar. From time to time when I was preparing a sermon, I would think this passage is really helpful for such and such a person. This is just what they need. And I'd think about them while I was writing it. And then when I came to speak, I'd stand up and I'd look around and I'd realize they weren't there. It was the one Sunday when they were absent. And that just seemed to happen over and over again. But occasionally, maybe very occasionally, a sermon would prove helpful to someone. And it would always be someone I'd never thought about who'd never crossed my mind. That's kind of God's sense of humor, isn't it? It's the romance of the kingdom. God is always working in ways that we have not thought about, we haven't planned. But what we can try to do is to live in alert faithfulness. That's a great way to go in to a new year of serving the Lord, isn't it? Martin Luther said that Christians should take life blithely like birds and babies. Take life blithely. In other words, be carefree to go on this adventure where all sorts of surprising things will happen. Where he won't give us what we deserve, he'll give us far more than that. Verse 29 again. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or all that other stuff for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and in the age to come eternal life. Hudson Taylor, great missionary in China, said he had never succeeded in making a sacrifice for God. He tried, but whenever he gave up something, he discovered that God gave him something better in return. God is no one's debtor, they say. He always gives us more than we deserve. He doesn't owe anyone anything. And that gives us a completely different motivation, doesn't it, for the Christian life. We're not serving God to save our souls, to have our prayers answered, to get the things we need. That kind of service is not joyful. It's not blithe. It's duty, not joy. It's fear, not love. Counting the hours. I'm bearing the heat and burden of the day. But gospel motivation is very different from that, isn't it? We're saying, I'm serving you, Lord, because I want to. I'm already a beloved child of your kingdom. I'm already safe. But I want to offer you the best of myself. There's a lightness, there's a joy in that kind of service. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a yoke, there is a burden, but it's a joyful and light burden. And that very different motivation, I suggest to you, may be the secret of a happy Christian life. Now I'm going to show you the image that always comes to my mind when I think of Jesus' joyful burden and about taking life blithely and I have to warn you it's a bit ridiculous so you may not find it helpful but I find it helpful this is it now when I'm feeling oh no I've got to do this I think of this picture and I think no no that's not how you serve Jesus you do it lightly joyfully you bounce along because he is wonderfully at work in this romantic, exciting, unexpected kingdom. Well, 
tell me afterwards if you think that's remotely helpful. But I don't want to be glib about this. You might say, well, the Christian life, is it really that easy? You know, that might be okay in TW11, but suppose you're a Christian in North Korea or Algeria. Very different. On the last two Sunday mornings, James Bunyan spoke from Philippians 2 about Jesus making himself nothing, becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. And he said the pattern of Jesus' life is suffering and then glory, and that's the pattern of our lives too. And James produced a very sophisticated technical graph, which I've borrowed from him, to demonstrate that pattern. Jesus gives up glory, he suffers, and then he's given glory. So suffering and then glory is the way the Christian life should go. As James said, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says when you become a Christian, you'll be given health, wealth, and all your problems will be over. Well, we know that's not right, don't we? When we follow Jesus, we take up our cross, we make sacrifices, we serve, we give ourselves away. So is there a contradiction between what James Bunyan was saying last week, suffering before glory, and what I'm saying this week, which is to take life blithely? I don't think there is. I don't think the Bible has contradictions. But it does have paradoxes. Paradoxes where two things have to be held together in tension. Jesus says both, take up your cross and follow me. And a cross is not a fun thing to take up, we know that. But he also says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is suffering, there is sacrifice, but in that there's a strange joy, an unexpected lightness, even in the most difficult things. Think about Peter. We've left everything to follow you. Yes, you have, Peter. You've left everything. That's extraordinary. And by the way, you don't know this yet, Peter, but you're going to die a horrible death, crucified for your faith. Is that a recipe for a miserable life? It kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? But no, it isn't, because actually, Peter, you'll be massively blessed as you take up your cross. In this life, you'll be given a hundred times what you've given up through the church community, And in the age to come, you'll sit on a throne judging the tribes and you will have eternal life that goes on forever. There is suffering, but there's also, in that suffering, there is a joy unspeakable. And we know that too even better than Peter did, don't we? Jesus is risen from the dead. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And in the end, it's impossible to make a real sacrifice for God. So the Christian life is not miserable drudgery. The Christian life is joyful service. We take life blithely. And that, I suggest to you, is the secret of a happy Christian life. So let's go into 2024 living in alert faithfulness, enjoying the romance, the adventure of the kingdom, where the last will be first and the first will be last, where we never know what the Lord will do next, But we know it will be something surprising, something unexpected, and something wonderfully generous. Amen.